0: Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate, and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times Financial Literacy Charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash F-L-I-C. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans and similar artful devices to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education this is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. And if you enjoy the podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter. It's a couple of emails a month from me on investing topics I find interesting, other podcasts I enjoy, and occasional book review. Visit our website, BehindTheBalanceSheet.com, and hit the sign up button. And while you're there, you might want to check out our fabulous online investing training school, the podcast is sponsored by Sentio. I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first the data is reliable and it aggregates all content, Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than other platforms I've used. And third, it's features I've never seen in other systems. My favorite one is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, is definitely worth looking at. Visit centio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more info, and you can even get a two week free trial. Quinton Price was born in Saigon, grew up in India, and for the past 20 years has worked at the very top of the financial services industry. He currently advises a variety of public and private companies, but until 2015, he was global head of BlackRock's Alpha Strategies business, where he was responsible for nearly $1 trillion of assets under management and was a member of the Global Executive Committee reporting directly to Larry Fink. Quinton has 30 years of experience in financial markets and is exactly the sort of guest we're hoping to have in the podcast. A wealth of experience, retired, and not afraid to speak out, as you will hear. In this interview, a rarity for Price, he talks about his snakes and ladders route to success, why doing the work is an integral part of his approach, and how putting clients first is the key to success in any business. Putting yourself in the client's shoes not only ensures that you're delivering the right product, it removes any possible temptation for ethical conflict. I hope you enjoy this episode. Quintin, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. Steve, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your early history, because you studied economic and social history at Bristol University. And then you ended up as the
1: trillion dollar man at BlackRock. How did that come about? well uh, as as with uh, most careers steve i think <clears throat> there's a bit of rationalization when you get to the uh, the final few laps but the reality is that th- there's a, there's, a, there's a there's a sort of healthy element of snakes and ladders i think in most people's careers and i've stepped on a few snakes and i've climbed a few ladders and um, what you see is the result between the two but funnily enough you know to to your when I was at Bristol, um, I didn't have any capital. It was I was graduating in 1983. Uh, the Saatchi brothers were in their prime as, as sort of icons of the advertising world. I was aware that it would be uh, really helpful to be able to make a good living. Um, so I was sort of thinking about things that I could do that were fun and hopefully lucrative. Um, I was pretty focused and I thought I'd go into advertising and I interviewed with a load of advertising companies and just realized they weren't really my type of people. And so I looked around and a friend of mine from school had joined an American bank the year before. Uh, He seemed to be enjoying it. I did a bit of work on those and it seemed that that was an interesting world. And I was fascinated by America. I'd never been there. So I joined an American bank and, and set out on my career as a banker, but the you know maybe we'll come back to it later. But but funnily enough, um, the advertising thing cropped up again because my move into fundamental research um, really was occasioned by the fact that one of the advertising analysts in the firm I was working at the time, James Cable, left, and I was running derivatives research. I thought, gosh, it'd be so fascinating to analyse all those companies that I thought about joining. So I asked the senior. Uh, media analyst for a job, and he offered me uh, the role that had fallen vacant, and that's how I got into the investment game.
0: Now, that's really interesting because Capels was a fantastic firm. So we started around the same time and Capels was always the number one and always the, the people to beat. And you were the media analyst. So talk about Maxwell Communications, because you did this great note in 1989, I guess, exposing Robert Maxwell as a crook and a fraud. I've just finished reading Robert Preston's book, The Fall. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a fantastic account of Maxwell and this larger-than-life character. What, what was James Capel like and what was it like following Robert Maxwell?
1: <laughs> well, um, James Capel was um, the most fun you could have legally. It was the most lovely firm, full of very talented people. As you say, it had an unparalleled reputation at the time for doing very, very good industry research. Um, There were some some fantastically smart analysts there, including actually my boss, Neil Blackley, who who was the senior media analyst. Um, But my lucky break, did come with Maxwell rather rather ironically because um I was I was still very early on in my days as a media analyst in fact it was just you you you're, you're around the right time it just flipped over into 1990 rather than 1989 but it was around that time and robert maxwell ran um at the time two companies uh, maxwell communication corporations and mirror group mirror group was not publicly was not publicly quoted at the time. So so I was only analysing Maxwell Communication Corporation. And um, because my boss was the senior media analyst and because he was the star and I was just this unknown, he gave me all the sort of rubbish companies to follow. (laughs) And so I was following some really interesting companies like Ratner's, and uh, Next and Burton Group, which were all at the time sort of fallen angels, if you will. And, um, and, and one of the others he gave me to cover was Maxwell. So, so when the report and accounts came out uh, in 1990, audited by Coopers and Lybrand, I took them home over a weekend and I worked on them. And, and people like you, experts like you in forensic accounting, had had taught me um, that there's an extraordinary amount that you can glean from uh, a report on accounts. So I, I worked all weekend analyzing all of the uh, accounts, the notes to the accounts. The, the crucial note was note 29D, um, which in a sense revealed um, what was going on, which was the company was hemorrhaging cash. So I came in on Monday morning And I spoke to our sales team, which at the time was transacting about one in five bargains in the London market and said, this is so much worse than people realize. And salesmen like nothing more than a good story. They're almost like sort of journalists. And so they got on the phone to their clients and the clients all wanted to meet. And so as this relatively unknown um, understudy, I was taken around to see the clients and I took them. Through the research, but the interesting thing about it was that it wasn't really a a groundbreaking piece of research in the sense it was all in the accounts. Um, uh, You know, I I didn't have any blinding insight. I just did the work, and in many ways, that served to inform me in my entire career. um, Which is just working really hard actually can make a big difference to your success. So we sold millions and millions and millions of shares. Um, And that attracted Robert Maxwell's attention because he borrowed money against the value of his holdings. And so he repeatedly tried to get me fired and got various of his um, hounds in the media to claim I was making a false market and making false accusations. But fortunately, I was raised in a family where moral principles were important. And I'll never forget my father writing to me at the time saying, I know this is really uncomfortable for you, but you're doing the right thing and you must stick to your guns regardless of the consequences because it's really important that um, these things come to light, and of course, you know, history being what it was, some time later, um, he was he was um, found floating off the back of his yacht, and no longer alive. And so, obviously, that was a big break for me because I'd been quite instrumental in, in a sense, blowing the whistle on on the Maxwell um, shenanigans, and. Um, That got me promoted to to doing a bigger sector much faster than I'd than I'd anticipated, and being the senior analyst in retail. So, so that was sort of what got me started. So, (laughs) rather paradoxically, I sort of owe Robert Maxwell, you know, a thank you for for um, providing me with that opportunity.
0: It's a great story, and it's a great moral, isn't it? That people don't necessarily always do the work, and I I can remember at that time. the media analyst at my firm, having seen your research being talked about in the press or whatever, he came to me with the Maxwell account. And if I, I I mean, I probably got the numbers completely wrong, but if I remember it correctly, and it was a long, I mean, 1990, it's 30 years ago, so forgive me, but I remember it was something like he reported 161 million pre-tax profit and 159 million of it was foreign exchange gains.
1: Something. I mean, it it was just... Uh, You've yeah. got a remarkable memory. It was something. I, 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 can only re- I can't only I can
0: remember what I, where I left my glasses 30 minutes ago, but I think that's just the, the, you know, the, the, what happens with age. But you said something about James Capel, which I think is very interesting. There was this marvellous place to work. It was a paragon of virtue where research was concerned. Why don't we have firms
1: like that anymore? Well, of course, this was just after Big Bang, which, as you know, took place in the sort of mid to late 80s. And I think eighty-five. And James Capel was still an agency broker. Which, for those of your listeners who who don't understand what that is, we we took a commission on um, any share bargains that we trans- transacted, but we didn't take any positions as market makers. So we we sought to make no profit from um, uh, from from owning or or being short of selling uh, shares in in order to buy them back more cheaply um, from trading, if you will. And and at the time, that was still very much rewarded in a way where you could make a living. And of course, the other thing, although James Cable had almost none of this, um, was that an awful lot of um, uh, research departments had replaced the old fixed commission system, which had been quite lucrative um which had been abandoned in big bang with fees that were from investment banking advice and of course you know many would argue that although those fees were 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 big in many cases um they helped to undermine the integrity of the research process a view i think um, which i would agree with actually um because you suddenly created an enormous conflict of interest which um, especially those firms who are used to working in a rules-based rather than the principles-based environment, found almost irresistible. And there were some very well-documented, as you know, well-publicized scandals about that with um, Citigroup and um, uh, Merrill Lynch um, selling shares or assessing shares in ways which um, turned out to be wholly inappropriate because of their uh, banking relationships. So I think... The reason we don't have them anymore is the economics have fundamentally changed in that business, uh, and the institutional investors who used to pay for it, um, they or the investment banking fees were were sort of not allowed to subsidize those research departments, and the and the institutional investors built their own in-house research departments, and so in a sense they spent money internally on on their own research rather than. Uh, with what's, you know, colloquially regarded as the sell side or, you know, the brokerage community.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's interesting the way they think the whole thing's panned out. And tell me, on Maxwell, did you spend time with him or was he one of these people that didn't like to spend time with people that disagreed with him in, in case he got found out? And, and, if, and were there any signals? I mean, was it one of those things that you... you 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 knew the way you knew what he was doing, and you spotted that repeatedly thereafter. I can remember the very first sell note that I did that I had an aggressive impact on the share price, and the reason I knew to push it very aggressively and market it very strongly in in, in the marketplace was this finance director had told me, Steve, you don't understand. And ever since when a company said to me, Steve, you don't understand, I thought, oh, that's a real warning signal. Was there anything like
1: that with, with Maxwell? Uh, there was. And, and I did meet uh, Captain Bob, as he was uh, known. Um, he, he struck me as a man who was almost certainly certifiably insane by the time I knew him. He was, he was in his own world. Um, and I met him in very bizarre circumstances, actually, because I, I um, wrote this note, which we were very careful to share with clients, but not officially publish. So we, we, we took them through the mechanics of the numbers rather than published a piece of work. So it remained in draft form because we knew that he was very litigious and and of course um we because we were selling so many shares and and at those in those days, Goldman Sachs rented office space in what was called Maxwell House, which was Robert Maxwell's um office building in Hoban, no longer exists, and it was torn down, and I think it's now the Sainsbury's headquarters and um um so um Goldman would parcel up from what I understand this is. Um, the the, the version of events that was um, explained to me by somebody who was at Goldman at the time, when we were selling millions and millions of these shares, uh, and we really were selling huge quantities of them, um, they would buy them, and then their traders would offer them to Maxwell knowing that he had to buy them at a certain price because he would borrowed money against the value of his holdings. And so in a sense... Um, if he didn't buy them from Goldman, then um his share price would fall and there would be calls on his collateral, and that would be catastrophic. And it was pretty evident to anybody who really looked into it that he was already in trouble. So um Goldman made a very tidy profit, again, from what I was told, this is all alleged, um, uh, on, on buying them off us as a certain price and then selling them to Maxwell at a at a higher price. And um um, and making a turn on that. Um, but because um, they told him that James Capel was doing the selling, he then wrote letters to the chairman of then uh, HSBC Investment Bank, because HSBC owned James Capel by then, and said, You know, you're, you're misleading investors, blah, blah, blah. And so I was summoned to see the chief executive, James Capel, who fortunately for me had qualified as an accountant. And his name was David Dugdale. He was a very um, gruff character, but a very good man. And he said, take me through the numbers. And I did. And he said, yep, you're right. So we'll back you. And and so we wrote back saying, you know, we think what we're doing is fair. And um, so Maxwell then continued to threaten litigation. And one of the sort of olive branches we offered him was that uh, Neil Blackley and I would go and meet with uh, Bob um, and see if we could resolve our differences. And so we went there and we met with actually Ian, uh, sorry, uh, Kevin and Bob. Kevin being uh, Bob's son, and Basil Brooks, who was the then CFO. And we had a conversation and we agreed to disagree because it was quite (laughs) evident that pretty well everything that they were coming up with was an invention. Uh, We carried on selling the shares and, you know, in the end, it it did go bankrupt. But I was very lucky because at James Cable, we had this extraordinary stable of people who who also took on other quite well-known sort of, um, shall we say, buccaneers so um, three of my colleagues at the time were engaged in similar, although slightly less scary disputes in certain cases, um, with uh, Roger Felber um, at uh, Parkfield, um, John Ashcroft at Colerol, uh, and um, uh, George Walker at Brent Walker, all of whom also went bankrupt. So uh, those three analysts were also in receipt of all sorts of threats of litigation, and, and I think of those, the one that I admired most was my colleague Max Stolding, who took on George Walker. And, and George, who, who ran Brent Walker before it went bust, um, ha, had actually been in prison for GBH earlier in his life. And so... He was a boxer, wasn't he? He was a boxer, among other things. He was also a gangster. Um, and, and so, you know, in that sense, um, even though it was quite scary dealing with Maxwell, and very stressful... I lost quite a lot of weight at the time, which wasn't altogether unwelcome. But um, he, um, Ma- Max, had to deal with with George Walker, who was, you know, was a man who had connections that I wouldn't want to encounter on a dark night. So, uh, in many ways, I felt the solidarity of good company and and other principled people, and I think that really helps, and is something that um, gives you an enormous amount of courage. I think when you're when you're surrounded by other people doing the same thing.
0: No, absolutely, that support. Uh, you And you fared better than Derek Tetheringson, who was the Phillips and Drew analyst who famously wrote a note with the recommendation, can't recommend a purchase, with the first letter in bold spelled vertically down the page. And Maxwell took great exception to that and had him fired. And um, that, I, I mean, it's it, it's funny in a way, because there he was, he had the courage to stand up like you, against that the this mad um CEO and founder but he lost his job and you know I, I don't know that he I don't know that he ever resurfaced because of course if he'd gone if anybody else had employed him Maxwell would have taken aim
1: at them as well I think so uh, sure quite... he did he did he did resurface smaller firms and and I think that was a blot on UBS's uh, reputation actually um, not standing by him that's my view and I think we should call those things out. Um, uh, I think they were intimidated by Maxwell. And I'm profoundly grateful that, um, you know, the Englishman who was my chief executive wasn't, um, because Maxwell was a big and scary guy who had expensive lawyers. So it wasn't fun. But um, but as you know, what's interesting about our world is that there are these buccaneers. And when people don't challenge them, they get away with quite a lot for quite a long time. And then, the people who end up suffering are the individual investors who've bought into that story and nobody's blown the whistle. So so probably innocent, decent people get hurt by these things. And it always struck me that it was really important to remember that at the end of these chains are not spreadsheets on Excel, you know, programs. There are real people with real money who stand to lose. And so your moral responsibility as, a, as an analyst was to do your very, very best to help those people make money legitimately and avoid losing money where there were dangers of losing money. And, and you know, we can both think about all sorts of occasions, not, not just the, the ones I've n- noticed, but many others where, um, you know, crooks and vagabonds got away with stuff for quite a long time because, um uh, you know, the institutional world was too pusillanimous to actually stand up to it or too compromised. It's funny, isn't it? Because you don't get as many
0: buccaneers as you as you did back then. But you're still you still see frauds and it, it's a different type of fraud. And the, the solution always, I think, is your point is do the work. But let's move on from Capels, because you then spent time at Putnam and indeed as head of research and then as co-CIO, I think at Gartmore. So tell me, um, talk a little bit about your experiences. I mean, do the different sides of the Atlantic, do Americans make better investment managers? We've got generally got bigger investment firms. What are the benefits, the drawbacks, the different cultures? If you had to blindfold yourself and invest in one fund, and it was you had a choice between an American, I better say an Englishman, and a Scotsman, which would you pick and why?
1: <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, as, as you know, uh, although it's a very entertaining question, um, the reality is that talent comes in all sorts of diverse shapes and sizes. And in fact, um, uh, you know, in many ways, um. Uh, the, the the crucial thing is not the, the nationality or the training or the cultural artifacts that uh, you possess, but your understanding of what you are doing and why you're doing it. And and I think I've met many brilliant investors of all stripes uh, in the Middle East, in Asia, in the United States of America, um, in uh, on the continent of Africa uh, and, you know, in greater Europe, if you will, including the UK. And I, I, I would say that the thing that marks the, 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 the truly brilliant investors out is they have an extraordinary clarity of thought. They are um, not proud about reversing their decisions. Um, they understand what process works for them. Um, so so I, I think it's very important in a sense for anybody thinking about this world to have a particular phrase which I used in many training programs uh, in the firms I worked in over the years um, to describe this, which is I think that the essence of this is that you must find your own voice. It, and the and the the metaphor i've always used is it's a bit like musical influences or literary influences but musical instru- influences are perhaps easier to to understand that whichever band you play in whichever singer songwriter you might be you are at some level influenced by who has gone before you but if you're van morrison or if you're bob dylan or if you're paul simon or if you're chris martin or if you're um Florence Welch or Florence you know if um Florence the machine or if you're uh, Gloria Gaynor um you you take in those influences but you find your own voice you find your own means of expression that is that is in a sense authentically you and i think that's the best metaphor i can give you for for successful investing that johnny armitage is a fabulous investor but he does things in Johnny's way. Chris Horn is an extraordinary investor. You know, Chris and Johnny get on very well, from what I understand. They are such different personalities. Um, but but Chris has a totally different process to Johnny, probably reflective of his background, which started out in private equity, and also probably his experience as a Harvard business school. So, so So I think finding your own voice is the crucial piece. And... That sounds, in a sense, so easy or simple, but it isn't. Like all of these things in life, like becoming a great musician, um, finding your own voice is surprisingly difficult. And, um, And that's why most people don't ultimately find it. They try and end up copying other people and becoming a bad pastiche. It's quite a difficult thing to do, though, isn't it? I mean, on my
0: Analyst Academy course, where we take people in a 12 month program to learn about investing, I have a whole sequence of stuff interspersed between the lessons about how to build your own investment philosophy. And, you know, I show the different investment philosophies of great investors. But it's, I mean, it is really, really difficult because everybody does it in such a different way, right? It's a very, as you say, it's a very, very personal thing. And you can only find your own voice, as you put it, by making a lot of mistakes. So it's, it's a very, very tricky thing. But there must be cultural differences in the way that Brits approach investing, the way Americans approach investing. I mean, was there was there anything that you were able to take from your experience in Boston and bring back to London that made a real difference that people going, oh, I hadn't done it that way. Because I remember um, being involved in in a flotation and it was the early days of Goldman's in London and they were joint brokers to the company and the company would ask all sorts of difficult questions, which our corporate finance team, being hopelessly British and amateur, had no clue about and Goldman's would come in the following day with a you know a hundred page PowerPoint, and you know our guys would go how how could they do that you know they, they couldn't have done they couldn't have answered that question on their own market let alone a global sector. Um, there must have been some things like that where the Americans they were just more advanced.
1: I mean, uh, at one level, I agree with you, and I also disagree with that contention. And what I mean by that is as follows that the thing that I learned from the Americans and that as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed graduate, I spent six months on a graduate training program in the States. And with all the you know, Yale grads and other people who were at sort of comparably good universities in the States to the top universities in the UK. And I think that the British graduates, um, that the the... The the ones I went with to the States, one had been at um, two had been at Cambridge, one had been at Durham, and I'd been at Bristol. And in our class we had people from UPenn and Yale and um, Wharton, undergrad, etc. So so we were all, you know, relatively good um, sort of qualificational backgrounds, if you will. But the Americans just worked harder. And I remember thinking uh, when I, uh, about three weeks into the training program, if we failed a test, this is not a cliche, it's not a romantic notion. This is what actually happened. If we failed one of our accounting tests, the people who failed it were fired. And we had about a 20% dropout rate on our training program. And I was really shocked and very, um, um, I was very concerned, in a sense, that that seemed to be very Darwinist. But by the end of the six months, what struck me was that the people who had left almost certainly weren't either qualified in one case, a delightful colleague of mine, who he just didn't really cut the mustard, or weren't interested and committed enough to want to be in finance and in banking. And in fact, there was a vastly talented... Uh, guy there, who um, had had um, come out of um, uh, Berkeley uh, on the West Coast, but who ended up at CBS in the television business, which he should have been in because he was so obviously that type. And so he was sort of found out because he just couldn't be bothered to engage. I mean, the accounting, as you know, it, you know you have to do the grunt work, but it's not rocket science. So this is not something that's beyond people's intellectual capabilities if you've got an intellect. And so um, I loved the fact that I learned in the States that effort has an enormous reward. And I I brought that back with me, age 24, thinking, I'm just going to outwork my European colleagues. And I worked unbelievably hard um, for a very long time thereafter. Actually, I promised myself that when I got married and had children, I would have a better work-life balance. And I, I worked very, very hard to achieve that. Not... Always successfully, but, but I would say largely successfully. Um, but the Americans just put the effort in. So, Goldman, as in your reference, would have had the answers. They would have, they would have written the whole book. But that doesn't always mean that you have the flair that, uh, and in, in some ways, the virtue of effortfulness can sometimes block out the sunshine of insight. And so where I agree with you is I think the Americans do have a, a better, more thorough and professional approach to things as a default. But sometimes that effortfulness is, a, is, is seen as an adequate substitute for flair and insight. And I don't think it is. I think you need both. And, and in the end, what's so wonderful about the world is that it doesn't matter where you come from. If you're prepared to do the hard work and you have the flair and insight, regardless of your nationality, you're much more likely to win. Not certain to win, but much more likely to win. It's so true, isn't it? And
0: it's true today, surprisingly enough. I've been doing some presentations to university students, and you, you do the presentation to the US students, and they are, I mean, much more switched on and much more dedicated. And I was talking to one um, kid who was the president of the finance club and he was interviewing at a hedge fund in the West Coast. And he was on interview number six and he had to do the most difficult submission. And I said, oh, that's quite an interesting um, submission. Uh, I've got a couple of things for you. And I I sent him a couple of things immediately afterwards. And the following week I saw something else. And each time he came back to me and he said, that's really helpful, but why? And and was really keen and hungry and and that's just so so important, I think, in order to be successful in our business. But okay, so let's go on to Blackrock you you ended up running the Alpha Strategies division, which was set up in 2012. Tell me how did that come about what What was the decision process that led to that creation, and how did you make it work?
1: Well well, as I said, um, I, I do believe. Um, that all of our careers to a greater or less extent involve uh, getting bitten by the odd snake and being slowed down by that and finding the odd ladder that enables you to um, take a few more steps faster than others. Um, Most of those um, are random, not all of them. And I think if you look out for the ladders and you are cautious about where you step, you can avoid some snakes, but there are random elements in all of our careers. And I'll, I'll just I'll just back that up before I answer your question with a couple of examples about this. That many people today will cite, and quite rightly, Jamie Dimon as the leading banker of his generation. I think there's no real dispute about that. If you look at the share price returns of J.P. Morgan relative to its peer group over the past twenty years since Jamie's been chief executive, his record is. Unsurpassed and truly remarkable. And, and that's that's during a period where it, it's very difficult to dispute it over twenty years. As you know, sometimes you can get lucky for five years or whatever, but over twenty skill is going to play a very large part in that uh, equation. But Jamie was working for Sandy Wa and fired Stan- Sandy's daughter at one point which didn't go down altogether well with Sandy, who then ended up firing Jamie, who took 18 months off and then ended up running a pretty moribund bank in Chicago, Bank One, before merging it into J.P. Morgan and then sort of in a sense playing the Duke of Edinburgh to Bill Harrison's um, um, you know, monarch, if you will, uh, for the two years before Bill Harrison, who was then chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, um... Retired, and and you know Jamie then took it on, and the rest is history. But the point about it is, very few people dwell on the fact that Jamie had that really quite significant setback. Very few people dwell on the fact that Jamie, in an interview that I read of his, talks very. He was at a good prep school, as the Americans call it, in New York. He was always quite outspoken, uh, but he wanted to go to Brown University, but he didn't get the references from his teachers who thought he was a bit up himself. And so he ended up going to Tufts in Boston, a very good university, but not maybe at the level of Brown. Um, And so that must have been a setback, but he dusted himself down and he got himself admitted to Harvard Business School. And he was a Baker Scholar, i.e. in the top 5% of that class. And it was a very illustrious class. But the point about that is that even the most successful people have setbacks. My boss at BlackRock, Larry Fink, was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, managing directorate. Uh, first Boston, as it was at the time, then Credit Suisse, First Boston. And he, he fell foul of um, um, a position he took uh, in uh, the mortgage market and, had in a sense, had to resign. But that was his starting point for starting what was uh, originally Blackstone Asset Management and then uh, bought out of that, became BlackRock Asset Management. And the rest is history. He's now the most successful uh, practitioner of asset management, if you will, that's ever lived. So. You know, Larry also, like Jamie, came back from very adverse circumstances at one point in his career. So um, uh, I was lucky in the sense that I was recruited by Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. And five months after I was recruited, BlackRock bought Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. So for me, that was an arranged marriage. I, I didn't join BlackRock. I was acquired by BlackRock. And having been acquired by Blackrock, which was a bond firm in those days, a bond shop, um, you know, they could arguably barely spell the word equities. And and I was working in the equities division with some vastly talented people whose performance was very strong, which made me look very good. How much impact I had on that performance, I will leave others to determine. But my own view is a pretty modest amount of that was due to me. In fact. Almost all of it was due to those very talented people. And, um, and I, I sat atop them, hopefully. I created good relationships, helped them uh, be free to do their jobs, managed them well. But, you know, I always saw that job as I was the manager of the football team, not the key striker. And I think part of the advantage I had was that in not wanting to be the key striker, I didn't really provide a threat or, a, you know, if you will, a, a sort of nuisance value to a lot of very talented people who like running money. Um, and, and then my man-management skills appeared to uh, be valued by BlackRock, and so I got progressively promoted. But these things, as as we both know, uh, owe somewhat uh, to good fortune and ho- hopefully a small amount to talent, but, but largely to good fortune.
0: And... Uh... What was it like being at the, the center, the top of this sort of enormous organization? And how do you manage the process of, you're, you've got a huge, huge firm, but this is a very personal job. And how do you decide how much autonomy you could devolve down to the people who are very responsible and talented and how much control do you need at the center i mean i because I find this uh, an extraordinarily difficult um decision, and you get this all these mad decisions uh especially at asset management firms especially at larger firms where there's some great machine at the center controlling everything, and the guys are the, you know just trying to do something at the you know the remote outpost. Right. Well, if only I was allowed to. How do you, you? I mean, you knew what it was like being at the sharp end, in the outpost. So how did you manage to reconcile those two conflicting objectives—keeping the control centre, but keeping the freedom at the at the sharp end?
1: Yes, it's a good question. I think it goes back to that point about finding your own voice, and I. I realized very early on when I was at James Capel, in fact, that I had a facility for leading and managing people and I liked working with people. And I I remember very early on at James Capel, I had a psychometric profile um, done, you know, amidst a whole cohort of people who were also assessed at the same time. And the psychologist who administered the test said to me, your levels of tolerance and patience are... Are an outlier. You're much, much more tolerant and patient than most professional managers. And I said to him, "Is that a good or a bad thing?" And he said, "I, I don't know that it's either. It's just what you make of it." And and I think the way I looked at that was that um, often w- working in any service business, but particularly with people who have latitude, like fund managers, um, you know, fund managers in order to outperform the market, you've got to be capable of taking a non-consensus view against your peer group who are equally clever and being absolutely convinced you're right. And that that means that, you know, a number of them have fairly ornery characteristics. And, um, and so they tend to be mistrustful. Um, I remember Sally Krawcheck, a noted analyst at Sanford Bernstein, being asked, how do you know when a management's lying? And she said, when they move their lips. And I'm not cynical, but I was quite entertained by her, by her answer. And and uh, so I realised early on that, in fact, most people, however ornery they are, disagreeable, they are grump, grumpy, um, resistant to authority, they are human beings who, if you understand them and you make it clear to them that you understand what they're trying to do and you're and you can win their trust it is remarkable what they'll do in reciprocal um, um ways for you so i read a very very interesting piece in harvard business uh, review by um, rob goffey uh, and gareth jones called why should anybody be led by you and it's still one of the best articles that i could ever recommend to anybody because they they really analysed what it was that made effective leaders. And a lot of it was about showing your own vulnerability without overdoing it, obviously, uh, and then um, being authentic. And I thought those seemed very reasonable things to do. So I just tried to be very human with people. But I also had very hard lines. If people transgressed on matters of principle, then you know, we came down very hard on them because we were in the trust business and we couldn't afford to breach that trust with our clients. And I felt as CIO, I was always the client's representative in the firm. Um, And so what, the you know, I always just looked at it through the lens of in this circumstance, what would the clients want us to do? And we always did that. Um, So that was great. And, And that makes the scale of it, much easier to deal with because you have very clear guidelines as to how to behave. Um, And then I was really, really excited and attracted by um, the strategy of asset management. How do you grow the size of your business? And that, to me, again, was part of the moral imperative of finding out what it was that plants wanted and giving it to them. Um, Because, in a sense, you serve them. And i never forget when I went into broking and uh, a very smart salesman I worked with said, the way to win in this game is to find out what your client's biggest problem is and help them solve it. And I've always used that. I've always just thought, well, we're in the business of serving clients. And as long as you stay focused on the clients and what they need and servicing that in a way that's ethical uh, and commercial and effective, um, they will repay you. And I think that's still true today.
0: It's funny, actually, because it's true of every business, isn't it? Yes. I mean, as long as you understand what the client wants and you understand what the client's problems are, you're laughing. As long as, and you know, so many successful businesses have been successful by having that very clear lens, and and not necessarily focusing entirely on that. But it, it's a brilliant um, example. I mean, quite interesting your approach to recruiting talent because I, I when I was doing some research about you. Um, One of your colleagues said, one of Quinton's most significant undertakings in recent years has been to add talent to our portfolio management teams in our fundamental active equity franchise, particularly in the US and Asia. We brought in new portfolio managers who are currently responsible for approximately 50 billion in assets. And those managers are delivering on their objective of generating high quality risk adjusted returns. Tell us, what was the secret for someone looking to get a job with you and what do you think is the ideal background, experience, philosophy for people that are looking to get into the investment business?
1: Gosh, um, that is a very interesting question. So, so some, some very key issues there. Um, uh, I once was talking to a very, very successful headhunter who had called me up and she'd said, um, I think you should think about this particular job, and I said, "Well, that's very flattering, but it's not really my sphere of influence or or uh, expertise." And she said, "No, no, no. I, I'm sure you could do it." And and I said, "Well, I, you know, I, I'm I'm grateful <laughs> that you think that, but I'm not sure I I share your view." But but um, you know, your job's really interesting, isn't it? How do you make these assessments? I was very interested in her process, and she said, "Oh, I grade everybody." I've got 140,000 people on my database, and I grade everybody from A-plus down to C-minus. And I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, goodness, you know, I work with some really talented people. So I said to her, gosh, that you know, it must be really difficult to distinguish between, say, the A-pluses and the A's. And she just laughed, and she said, you know, there are 32 A-pluses on my database. And she said, they are the easiest people in the world to identify, because when they walk in, you just know. And that never left me. And that doesn't mean that you can always recruit A pluses because there just aren't that many of them. But that's what you're looking for. And so um, I can think about two particular uh, recruits that I made at BlackRock Inequities that both built very, very substantial books of business. And in the interview process, it was very clear to me that they were both people who were extraordinarily talented. But I was very lucky because in seeking to recruit those people, I had a firm that was very commercial behind me who could you know the firm could pay competitively um and while the cultural characteristics of Blackrock weren't always copacetic with my own, it was a very um um I'm trying to think of a polite phrase for it. It was a very um, sort of assertive culture. let's let's leave it as english euphemism. and um and yet I learned an enormous amount about various things from my experience as a blackrock. i I watched a man who has founded a firm. Uh, a firm whose market capitalisation now is in excess of Goldman Sachs. Um, this is Larry Fink. I watched him at very close quarters for 10 years, and I learned an enormous amount about how he thought about the business, how he paced things. It seemed to me that he had a very clear plan about who to upgrade, but he was very patient. He would upgrade people progressively so that there was never too much disturbance in the business. And again, Larry may dispute this, but this was my inference in watching him. But he was also somebody who, in that same way that we're talking about, you know, you need both flair and effort. Larry worked incredibly hard and, I mean, really breathtaking hours and commitment. Um, But he also had the ability to just sit back and take a 30,000 foot view when necessary while, while being able to drill into the most extreme detail. And, you know, you and I are both ex-analysts. I would back myself on numbers pretty well against anyone, maybe not against you, but pretty well against anyone else. But when Larry used to ring me and ask me questions about the business, which, you know, its peak was about 45% of BlackRock's revenues, his, his command of the detail of my business was greater than mine. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that. I was blown away by that. But he took me to places and dimensions that I just didn't even know were possible. But, you know, in any in any assessment of truly world class, effective commercial leadership, Larry has got to be he's probably built the most valuable company in America outside the technology business over the last 30 years. That's a remarkable achievement. So, of course, he's a remarkable man. That doesn't make me want to be him because he's a very different personality to me. And what motivates him is not what motivates me. But I can admire and respect, uh, you know, elements of his achievement. And I can also learn from those things, which I did. And I think that that helps you hone your own decision-making style. And it helps you in those 10,000 hours that we all need when we're seeking to become experts. You just have to do the work. And you have to do your 10,000 hours in order to, Know how to react in certain circumstances because you've done it twenty-five times before. No different to an ER doctor. The, uh,
0: is it fascinating what you what you're saying about Larry? Fink and the, it, it, he must be an incredibly driven guy because he would never have been able to build such an incredibly um, successful business with with that without that. But say you know w- there'll be young people listening t- to this and they all will express a desire to work hard but they they, they haven't had the opportunity to, to do it yet what other things would impress them impress you if they came for an interview so they'd say yeah Quinn and I'm they've listened to this I'm going to work really hard no nothing's going to be too much trouble what well, are, are there things in people's backgrounds or philosophy or approach or is it is it it's such a diverse area investing and people approach it in so, such different ways. My guess is that there isn't anything that you can point to that says that will work. Is there, is there anything? I mean, do you have any pet loves or pet hates when you're, you're looking at young people, when you're looking at the graduate intake coming into BlackRock each year when you're doing that?
1: Yeah, it's a very, it's, again, a very interesting question. Of course, I give it a lot of thought. I I mean, I do think success can come in all shapes and sizes. I think the most important thing is to understand what your own shape and size is, as I've said before, and not try and bend yourself out of shape. So to your point, while I think in our industry, hard work still is an absolutely prerequisite, it, it isn't as much of a prerequisite in other industries where you know, the, the, the emphasis is much more on flair than it is on flair and effort, for instance. So a lot of the creative industries, you know, the, the, you've got people who must be very, very difficult to work with indeed, but who have extraordinary flair. And they're, they are, they are um, tolerated, if you will, because of that flair. And we all know stories of actors and directors and musicians who would fit that bill? Um, they didn't necessarily work hard and not not that any of them you know I'm sure Elton John worked incredibly hard on his n- musicality for instance, as he was at the Royal Academy of Music and most of them with that prodigious talent you know have some extraordinary deep down sort of flair as well but um what I'm really looking for and what I was looking for is a real sense of engagement, a real energy a a sense that here is somebody who is deeply interested in what they're doing. And I don't think you can fake that. And if you can, it's very difficult to fake it successfully. So we all know what it's like to talk to people about their particular passion, and they just light up. And I was looking for that that sense of people lighting up, Not, not mindlessly, but... Um, people who really understood and had a joy in whatever it was that they were doing, selling, analyzing, um, whether it was product design or, or any other element of the business. But that level of engagement, which in a sense almost subconsciously communicates itself to the interviewer because it's very difficult not to feel enthusiastic about something if the person sitting opposite you is being authentically enthusiastic about it. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great piece of advice.
0: Can we talk about Reggie Nelson?
1: Shall I tell
0: the story about him? Sure. And maybe you you colour it in. I mean, this is um, a, a, an amazing story. It's, this kid, Reggie Nelson, dreamed of a university education, a top job, and the wealth to go with it. But he had no idea how to achieve it. He was born and raised in a council estate, so. Very poor family, a single mom. After his father died, he'd been excluded from school. He's already having run-ins with the law. He went knocking on doors in a wealthy area in in London where Quentin used to live. And Quentin, your wife Elizabeth invites him in for a cup of tea. Now twenty three, Reggie says that Quentin's something of a father figure to him. Tell us the story about about Reggie because it's a, a fantastic, inspirational story. I think.
1: <laughs> well. I mean, my, my old boss at uh, Putnam, Larry Lasser, uh, had a phrase which I've never forgotten, which when he was chief executive, he said, I get an awful lot of credit and an awful lot of blame for all sorts of things that happen around here, almost none of which have anything to do with me. And I, I think in many ways, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a disproportionate amount of credit for, for the Reggie story for where it's featured. But, but let me fill in the, the, the blanks here. Um, uh, and, and, and the first thing is that, of course, I wasn't at home when Reggie knocked on our door. Uh, you happen to know my wife, Elizabeth, because she was a client of yours. Um, and you know her well enough to know that she's a insightful, instinctive, compassionate person who would recognize exactly what she did recognize in Reggie, which was an energetic, sincere 17-year-old who's desperate to make something of his life. And so why wouldn't you invite somebody like that in? And the fact that we lived in Kensington, quite interesting, listening to people who have either seen the BBC video about Reggie or heard the story. And, and a, a number of them have have said to me, "Gosh, you know, how, how brave of your wife to invite somebody in who, who was a complete stranger." And of course, there's an element of code to this, because Reggie also, he's of Ghanaian extraction, and he's black. And and that, I think, is a desperately sad commentary on the level of mistrust that some people have in other people in society. You only have to meet Reggie for about three seconds to realise that he's just a wonderful young man. He's now 25, um, and he lost his father, who, uh, tragically, when, when he was um, 16... Um, to alcohol poisoning. His father was an alcoholic. Um, And his his mother, single-handedly, then took over, obviously raising him and his sister, who's also hugely spirited and talented. She raised them incredibly well. Um, They're very disciplined, very focused, um, very good fun. He's got a wonderful sense of humour. And so when I got back, I'd been out in the park, actually, nearby, and Elizabeth said, look, this is Reggie, and I invited him to have a cup of tea because he was asking how you end up in a house like this. And I thought, well, when I was his age, I would probably ask the same question. So how how can I help this lad? And, and it struck me that he, he didn't know what he wanted to do, but the best way of finding out is to just expose people to things. And obviously, you know, I worked in finance. so I thought, well, at least I can show him what finance is like. So I invited him in for a day's work experience at BlackRock, really just to give him a sense of what you know something like that was like. And it might help him say, well, I don't want to do this. I remember my daughter doing work experience at Goldman Sachs and saying, I don't want to do this after a day. Um, and uh, she now makes documentary films and it makes her very happy. And I'm delighted by that. I don't have that flair or talent, um, but I'm enormously proud of the fact that that's what she does. And my son is in finance, actually in investment banking. And he's a lot more thoughtful and intelligent than I'll ever be. And I'm delighted by the fact that he's doing something that floats his boat too. But Reggie came in, charmed everybody at Blackrock. He has exceptionally good manners, which, by the way, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. And at the end of the day, I said to him, well, what do you think? And he said, gosh, I, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And, and I said, well, why not come back for a week sometime? So we arranged that quite quickly when it was the school holidays. And he came in for a week, and again, he charmed everybody, and he worked really hard and listened. And then um, he said to me, I'd really like to do this. And I said, okay, well, in order to get a good job in this industry, you need to go to university. So is that something you would think about? Because I know you're doing your A-levels. And he said, well, I haven't thought about it before. But given that this is the prize, yeah, you know, I will. So he went off to university. We, we, uh, I linked him up with a, a colleague of mine at work who had quite a similar background to Reggie, who'd also gone to university and read economics in Japanese, weirdly, um, but done very well. And um, Reggie ended up going to university reading economics and then applying for jobs uh, and landing a very good job. He's now at Legal and General Investment Management and a very good job there. Um, But he works very hard. He's given back a lot to his community. He does a huge amount of outreach, Sometimes um, I get invited along with him as his understudy to sort of tell the story. But, of course, the story is really about Reggie. It's not about me. It's about the fact that here is a young man who saw his father's life dissolve before his very eyes at a very young age and said, that's not going to happen to me. And it, it it really gave him an extraordinary motivation to make something of his life And actually, both Elizabeth and I feel this profoundly, that we have benefited far more from meeting Reggie than he has from meeting us, because to be given that example by somebody so young, so impressive, um, so lacking in any cynicism, and most importantly, lacking in any sense of victimhood, Reggie never felt sorry for himself and still doesn't. He just wanted to get on and do his thing. And I think we should all applaud people like that because they are the backbone of our societies. They're the people who end up making money and paying taxes that pay for hospitals and schools and other things for people who are less fortunate than they are. And so I owe Reggie a debt of gratitude for knocking on our door and I give the credit to Elizabeth for inviting me in. I did the easy bit and really it just it was so easy for me to do it that I, I, you know, I deserve very little credit in this.
0: Well, we won't give you any credit. We'll give the credit to Elizabeth, who's a fantastic friend and and brilliant, brilliant person.
1: I think we we
0: can't follow that, Quinton. Let me just ask you one closing question. Um, I don't know. Do you have a, a favorite book that stands out, or what book practice or training would you recommend someone that's looking to come into that asset management industry? What do you think?
1: Well. I did think about this before because, you know, as you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a piece of advice that you and I both get asked by people often who, who are sort of thinking about what to do. And I, I think um, I do have um, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one is that my observation, I started running training programs at BlackRock, uh, which I sort of wrote the material for myself because I always had an open door policy. And I used to try and be accessible to, uh, especially the younger generations as they joined, because I think it's terribly easy to seem like quite a forbidding character when you're quite senior. And that scares off the youngsters and they don't really know who to turn to for advice. So I I had an open door policy and, and hopefully it worked. And I used to get these younger employees coming into my office, typically at the end of the working day and just sort of sitting down and asking you know a few questions. And what I realized over time in these conversations was that the same themes cropped up all the time, and they they were typically um, themes around um, how how you know how can I sort of guarantee my success and what do I need to do in order to be successful. And I realized that these were the same questions that I'd asked myself, and when I spoke to my friends, they'd asked themselves. And as you know, Steve, there's an element of post hoc rationalisation in all of our lives. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, where we 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 sort of sort of attribute some rationality to various things we did, whereas in fact, quite a lot of what we did was random at the time, or just seemed like the right thing to do. And so, the books that I'm going to recommend are um, perhaps not to everybody's taste, or perhaps they are. I don't know, but there are two. One is leadership, which is called The Will to Lead by Marvin Bauer. And Marvin Bauer was the man who built McKinsey into the sort of powerhouse consulting firm that uh, it became. Now, are all sorts of question marks around McKinsey's integrity with you know various uh, high profile um, issues that they've been involved with over the last couple of years. But that shouldn't obscure the fact the McKinsey under Marvin Bauer was 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 transformed from a sort of nascent consulting firm into an extraordinary consulting firm. And I think Bauer's principles, if you will, which are elucidated in the book, are well worth everybody thinking about. Because in terms of running a professional services business, you know, if you if you if you want to either become a senior leader or lead your own business, I think it's a book well worth think about it's very easy to read it's it's not a difficult read it's very accessible it's beautifully written and it's also very interesting the, the other book which is in many ways so that's sort of more of a philosophical treatise about the nature of leadership but it is peppered with really practical sort of observations the, the other book which um, again he, he's not everybody's favourite character, but I met him and knew him quite well while he was alive, it was Jack Welch, who ran G.E. And again, G.E. then ran into trouble you know, probably 20 years after he retired, but he ran G.E. vastly successfully um, for 20-odd years, and uh, he wrote a book called Winning, which is not only not sort of an autobiography in a sense about his experiences at G., but also in many ways an enormously useful primer and a very practical book about the choices that we all have to confront about work and about the ambitions we have for work and at work. And Welch is just very honest and authentic and clear about the decisions. This is a man who had three marriages and a number of children by different wives. You know, so you know, his life was not an altogether tidy life. Nor did he claim that it was. and In fact, Jack Jack was massively fulfilled by his business career, and I think probably, though I wouldn't want to comment too authoritatively on this, at some cost to you know, the family elements of his life. That isn't an ambition that appeals to me, but he doesn't impose that on anybody in the book. He just makes the point that you have choices. And he's very realistic about what those choices incur so to give you an analogy um, I remember Kim Kleisters who won Wimbledon saying I'm not going to play in Wimbledon next year because you know I want to have my baby and have some time off and you know there is this fashionable notion that somehow you can have it all well you probably can but not all at the same time and and so um, you can have it all in the sense that you can pursue your Career single-handedly, but that might cost you in your personal life, or you can pursue your personal life single-handedly and therefore make compromise in your career. But all of us has, has the option to optimize that to a greater or lesser extent. And what winning does is it describes those things very well. And I found that very, very helpful when I was faced with big moments in my career about how much to commit and how how to commit and when to commit and as i said earlier on completely instinctively i remember thinking before i had children i can work really really hard for this period of my life because when i have children i really want to have time to spend with my children and i made that time spend with my children whether whether they thank me for that or not you'd have to ask them but i've enjoyed it and um so you know, I think what winning does is it gives you that primer that's hugely practically based, and it forces you to confront those those issues that are not very romantic in the sense that you do have choices. We wish we didn't, but we do. And if you look at you know very very successful people in any field, there's usually a cost associated to that at some part of their life. And for all of us, we're going to have to make those choices as we go through our lives. They're, no rehearsals in this business. And I think it's really important to make those choices thoughtfully and most importantly, deliberately. So Winning and The Will to Lead would be the two books I'd recommend. Fantastic, uh, interesting choices, but books that I haven't read. So I'm going to add
0: those to my, <laughs> um, my book list and, my, uh, I, and I'm gonna put those in the show notes. Quentin Price, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great fun, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank
1: Steve, you. I, it's a real pleasure. And, you know, I'm second to no one in my admiration of your your particular skills and talents. And while, you know, I know the objective of the show is not to point those out, and you certainly haven't asked me to say this, but I've never come across anybody with your forensic skills. And thank goodness that people like you're around to show us Way When there are buccaneers and shysters around, um, to save us from the very painful job of finding that out <laughs> in, in ways that uh, Find out more painfully. don't leave us. Thank you so much. Take care.
0: Quentin Price has occupied a position of great seniority in some really large organizations. I've never been a manager and hated working in large companies, and I never lasted long. Quinton puts his success down partly to his temperament and a highly tolerant attitude. I've always had a very low threshold of tolerance and in this interview, I learned that perhaps I would have managed better if I had exercised a bit more patience. Not a bad lesson to learn, albeit perhaps a bit late for me, but thanks to Quinton for coming on. I learned a lot and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Don't forget, Subscribe to the podcast and your favorite hosting service, and please leave us a rating on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Steve Clapham, and we're on all social media channels. Check out the YouTube channel, Behind The Balance Sheet, for some great videos with investing tips, accounting red flags, and much more. And don't forget, most importantly, we've got a newsletter. Hit the sign up button on BehindTheBalanceSheet.com. You'll get access to our library with lots of free training materials, The newsletter is free and you'll get the inside track on this and on future podcast episodes. Thank you.